If you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21. Okay, let's stand and read. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them. And he sat in the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds are saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Please be seated. Well, today, as you know, is Palm Sunday. It contains one of the most important events in all of Jesus's life and ministry, something we've come to label within the Christian community as the triumphal entry. Now, of all the events in Jesus' life, this is probably the most carefully orchestrated event in all of his ministry. Everything he did, everything he said, was designed with a purpose and designed to make a statement. A statement of who he was and what he came to do for Jerusalem and every city afterwards including Okotoks. This is important for us to remember in the context here because up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he went to great efforts to restrain his identity and to restrain from gaining any public fame. He didn't want attention to be drawn to himself. He didn't want people to know he was the Christ and he wouldn't allow attempts made by people to make him king. I'll give you just a couple examples from the scriptures. You remember the demon-possessed um, people in the, in the synagogues would shout out and identify him as the Holy One of God. And he, it would say in Mark 134, he makes this claim, Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In Mark 144, after healing a man with leprosy, Jesus says, see that you say nothing to anyone. Even his disciples were given this instruction in Mark 8.30, the famous, who do you say I am passage. Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus says, I'm warning you not to tell anybody about me. On Palm Sunday, 
There was no more holding back. It was game on. It was time to reveal his identity. Now, before we look at the details of this event, it's helpful to remember the context. There's some new people in our church and, and uh, it's good to sort of get an understanding of what's going on here in terms of Israel's history. We're few, a few days away from the Passover in Israel. It's held in Jerusalem every year. And see, God commanded the Jews to observe three festivals and feasts a year. They were designed to do two things, remember and renew. Remember and renew. And so Israel, as a nation, about 1,500 years before this event, had been enslaved in Egypt. They'd been in slavery to Pharaoh for about 400 years, and life was horrific under the Pharaoh. The people were crying out to God for deliverance, and God heard their cries, and so he sent Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. He did this through a series of ten plagues to convince Pharaoh to let them go, and the tenth plague was the most important. It was a plague that was promised the death of the firstborn males in the land, both humans and livestock, if Egypt did not let them go. But God in his mercy and grace had a, had a way for Egyptians and Jewish people alike to escape his judgment. If they would follow his instructions and by faith take a lamb, one year old, kill it, and take the blood from the lamb and smear it on the door frames of their homes. If they did this, when the angel of death passed over the land, God would free them from the penalty of the firstborn dying. Those inside the house and those in the field would maintain their lives. And it would be a, and the reason this is that the blood on the door was a symbol of a covering for sin. They believed God was going to judge for sin, and the blood was a covering for the sin, and so no judgment fell upon the people who obeyed this, this um, command. So, after this happened, it was a final straw that broke Pharaoh's back to allow Israel to be freed. He let the people go, and probably somewhere in the neighborhood of two million Jewish people exited out of Pharaoh under his grasp. This had been going on now, this annual feast for 1,500 years. They were renewing their, their commitments to God for what he did in their history, and they were remembering his grace and his forgiveness that he offered them. So this is what was going on in Jerusalem when Jesus comes in. He's one week away, actually Friday, he's five days away. Um, well, yeah, about a week away from Passover. And so people are starting to celebrate and come into the land in preparance for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and so on. So many in the crowds would have been impacted by Jesus in some way. He had freed people from demons. He had freed people from disease. He'd even raised people from the dead. Others were impacted in a negative sense. In Luke's account, the religious leaders were not happy with the, the disciples who were praising Jesus and yelling out Hosanna. He, this, the, the religious leaders told Jesus to rebuke his disciples, a modern day of weighing shut up. The crowds were in a frenzy. 
The excitement was in the air. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as many had believed him to be the king of Israel, the Christ. They were giving him the royal carpet treatment in verse 8. They were spreading their coats on the ground and, and um, cutting down palm branches. They were also declaring that with his words by declaring, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not long after he goes to the gates of the temple, though, the frenzy is over. And one week later, the Jews who had come to celebrate Passover were no longer chanting Hosanna, but crucify him. So what happened? What happened? Well, we have to look at the events from two perspectives. The crowds and Jesus. What do the people have in mind by their actions and by their words? And what did Jesus have in mind with his actions and his words? And what are we to learn from this? The gospel in the Bible is titled The Good News. The gospel is the good news. Well, their words and actions of the crowds revealed what they thought the good news about Jesus was. Let's first look at their words. Hosanna in Hebrew means God saves. Means God saves or save us now. The son of David was a promise to King David hundreds of years before that a son would one day come from him that would be the final ultimate king who would establish an eternal everlasting kingdom. The people were expecting one to come from David's line who was the eternal everlasting king, which meant that who was ever in power at the time of his coming would be removed. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord comes from Psalm 118 and verse 26. The context is key. In that whole Psalm, God liberates Israel from enemy nations. And so when God has a military victory over them, the people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So their good news, the crowd's good news, was that Jesus had come to liberate the Jews from Roman oppression. In other words, actually, we're going to look at this too. No, never mind. I'll leave it on. He was a holy terminator. He's a holy terminator, and he's coming to kick some butt. Further evidence, actually I should say this, Hosanna then would have probably not just been a shout for praise, but a cry for help. Not just a shout of praise, but a cry for help. <coughs> Further evidence, though, was found in their actions. Their actions showed that they believed that he was a holy terminator coming to freedom from Rome. They gave him the royal carpet treatment, if you will, in verse 8. It says there that most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them in the road. The act of putting your coats in the ground was reserved for royalty. In 2 Kings in chapter 9 and verse 13, 
Jehu is becoming king in Israel. It's time for his inauguration. And I quote from that scripture, it says that Israel quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king, Jehu is king. So when the crowds took their garments off and laid them before the Jesus, they were paying homage to him who they believed to be king of Israel. The palm branches go back to a couple hundred years earlier in their history. In 167 BC, a king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Jerusalem. He brought the Assyrians with him and he desecrated the temple. He slaughtered a pig to Zeus in the temple of God. He massacred many of the Jews in the city who had not turned from obeying the Old Testament law. He, and then and in revolt, a man by the name of Judas Maccabees rose up with his family and eventually liberated the temple three years later in 164 BC. That's the history in Jerusalem, um, in Israel's history, I should say. Interestingly enough, we find Jesus and John celebrating this feast. It wasn't commanded by God in the Old Testament, but Jesus was part of it. That's the, it's the same time he raised Lazarus from the dead, I believe. It was Hanukkah. We call it Hanukkah today. But in celebration to commemorate the event, the Jews cut down palm branches and brought them into the temple after its liberation in 164. And these palm branches were symbols of victory over an enemy nation. So again, we see in the crowd's actions and in their words, everything they believe about Jesus. And just to show you how pervasive this thought was and how present it was even amongst his own disciples, even after the resurrection, which he would have thought would have cleared up the issue, did not clear up the issue. Remember in the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, he's, he's now been resurrected and men are walking down the, the dirt road and they're really, really down. And Jesus appears to him, but he masks himself from his physical presence. And he's having a conversation with them. And he basically says, like, why are you so bum, chum? And the crowds and the guys go, well, where have you been, Jesus? Like, haven't you seen what's happened here in town? This guy, Jesus, who we were hoping was the Messiah, was crucified and he was killed. We were hoping, he says, we were going to, he was going to redeem Israel. In other words, because he was killed, he failed. He failed. 40 days later, around 40 days later or so, in Acts, um, Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, the disciples, his, his main 11 guys, the disciples are told to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they turn to him after countless resurrection appearances. And they say to him, is it at this time, Jesus, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's pervasive in Jewish thought. So let's look at Jesus' perspective in his words and by his actions to reveal what he thinks is going on. And two scriptures seem to be on his mind, ones that he wants to fulfill. But before we look at them, I want to know if any kids have a Bible that's open here today. Any kids have a Bible that's open? Any kids that can read a Bible? <laughs> Adeline. Okay, I'm going to ask you 
I'm going to ask you two uh, questions. I don't have to answer this question. I'll make this statement, though. Have you ever wondered why there's so much attention given to Jesus' instructions surrounding a donkey? Why is this whole text filled with what to do about a donkey? Well, Adeline, how many times in verse 2, using like donkey, if, you might have donkey twice or colt, but how many times in verse 2 does, um, is it referred to? The word donkey or colt, how many times in verse 2 does it come up? chapter 21 and verse 2. Proud of you for sticking your hand up. Verse 2. How many times does the word donkey or colt happen in that verse? Twice. Okay, now look at verse 5. How many times does it happen there in verse 5? Twice. And in verse 6, how many times does it happen? Twice. 11 verses, 6 references to a donkey. What in the world is going on? What's this donkey business? Matthew is telling us there's something much more important about the presence of the donkey than meets the eye. And the first scripture being fulfilled in Jesus' actions and his words is in relation to his instructions about how to get the donkey. How to get the donkey. And the second is in reference to his riding of the donkey. So let's look first at the first scripture, Genesis 49.10. When Jacob was about to die, he asks his sons to come to him. And he wants to prophesy over their future. So he takes Judah aside and he says in verse 8, Your brothers will praise you, father's son bow down to you. And then Jacob proceeds to say this, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to a choicest branch. What does Jesus say to the disciples in verse 1? Or verse 2? Go into the village opposite you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Jesus is revealing here what's going on. He's a fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy that Genesis spoke of. He's saying, the king is here, the nations will be mine, now is time, untie the colt. The second scripture is found in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. In Zechariah, in chapters 9 through 12 in the book, he speaks of Israel's coming one and describes him as like a shepherd king. A shepherd, but a king. And he paints a picture of the shepherd king as a lowly king, rejected and killed by his people, who then comes, who comes to them, and whose martyrdom is the cause of their salvation. Look at Zechariah chapter 12 for a clear indication of this. The central portion of this scripture is found in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
He is just in the Dalva salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So notice first how he comes. He comes riding on a donkey. This king comes riding on a donkey. Notice though also his disposition on this donkey. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble. Humble. He's not warring. He's gentle, as Matthew says in our in my version, in verse six, verse five. He's coming humbly and gently, but he's endowed with salvation. This is really, really important. And notice what will be taken away. What's taken away? He says, I will take away the chariot from Jerusalem. I will take away the horse. I will take away the bow of war. And I will speak peace to the nations. What is taken away is not her enemies, but Jerusalem's instruments of war. Remember Peter, he's about to cut off the ear of the servant, of the high priest's servant. He does cut it off. And what does Peter do, or Jesus do? He says, Peter, put your sword away. We don't need that right now. Jesus' actions demonstrate that when he ascends as king to the throne, there's no need for tanks and guns. One more more point about this donkey. In seeing him riding it, we, we gain the essence of his kingship. When kings would come to a particular city, the animal they rode signaled the purpose in their coming. So if you rode a horse into a city, That was the signal that you were coming to wage war. Or there was a sign of victory. When you rode a donkey, it was a sign of peace. A sign of peace. And it's what servants often rode as well. So when Jesus rolls into town, he's saying this, Behold your king, but not one in which you think. I'm the shepherd king who's gentle, who's humble, who's a servant, who comes in peace, who's going to lay his life down for his enemies, not destroy them. They wanted a sword, the crowd did, the people did, but what they got instead was a cross. And they wanted a lion, and they got a lamb. You see why one week later, when Jesus didn't fulfill their expectations, to anything happening in the land, it was easy to switch their tunes to crucify, crucify. He hadn't dealt with Rome the way they were expecting. And let's just say he did. Let's say he liberated Jerusalem and Israel from the Roman oppression. What would they have likely done with that freedom and power turned around and enslaved someone else. And Jesus is saying, listen, 
The real problem in the world is not Rome. The real problem in the world is the hearts of the people in Rome. It's their sin. It's their evil. It's their spiritual emptiness. And it's the fact that they're all going to die one day with no solution to get out of the grave. So the crowd leaves them and the city rejects them. With this in mind, I want to finish by turning our attention to Barabbas. You might have wondered for a long time, why in the world so much sympathy for Barabbas? And those of you who are unfamiliar, um, we'll turn together here to Luke 23 and verse 17. Let's do this as a church. Turn to Luke 23 and verse 17. It was, uh, we'll read this together. Okay, I'll read Luke 23, verse 17. He says, Now he, Pilate, was obliged to release to them, the Jews, at the feast, one prisoner. So on the custom of Passover, obviously, the, I don't know about this, where this all comes from, but the Roman governor would let one prisoner go free a year on the day of Passover. Again, I don't understand why. Maybe someone else knows, but regardless, he would, that was his custom. So it's either Jesus or Barabbas. See, the Jesus with Barabbas, that's the only two that were the options that day. But look at the description of Barabbas in verse 18. But when they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release us for Barabbas, it says in 19, He was the one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. What's insurrection? a violent uprising against the authorities. Who's an authority? Rome. Are the Jews in favor of Barabbas' actions based on everything we've learned about Jesus? Of course they are. Barabbas is a hero, but he's been caught by the Romans and now he's going to be crucified. You understand now why? Um... So much sympathy was given for Barabbas. He was the Jewish hope. He was living out the Jewish hope. Free us from the Romans. Free us from the Romans. One more interesting point about Barabbas. In Matthew's account, here's the crazy thing, the irony. uh, Barabbas' name in Matthew 27, 16 is Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. Jesus in Hebrew means Savior. Bar means the son of. And Abba, Abba Father, right? Abbas means Father. Barabbas' name? The Savior, the Son of the Father. So, the irony. The irony. When Pilate says to the crowds, which Jesus He's saying, which Jesus, son of the Father, do you want released this morning? The one that takes matters into his own hands and kills his enemies? 
in order to justify the Jewish cause, or the one who lays his life down for his enemies and, who, and, and for those who want to kill him? And of course, the answer was Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Crucify the true Savior, the Son of the Father. I'll leave you with a couple of thoughts this Easter. Just a couple of thoughts. Often false expectations of Jesus can lead us to unnecessary disappointment. The problem is we miss the true heart of who Jesus is. When we do this, we miss the true heart of who Jesus is and who he wants to be in our lives. Some of you might be coming into Easter this morning with a spirit of disappointment. Where are you, God? Where have you been? Why don't you care? And Jesus says, I absolutely do. I laid my life down for you in love to deal with your disappointments, to deal with your depression, to deal with your suicidal thoughts, to deal with your addictions, to deal with the sin, to deal with your spiritual emptiness. That's who I am as king. I laid down my life for those things. We have to be careful because sometimes, I know for myself, I've done this a lot in my life. I've been disappointed with the Lord many times because he didn't do this for me or do that for me. But the more I get to know him through the scriptures, he never promised to do some of the things that I'm expecting him to do. And therefore I get disappointed. It's important for us to know who he really is what he really came for. We have to be careful not to make King Jesus fit our own expectations. But he has a different way of bringing resolution to many of our problems. And he wants to deal with our greatest needs in his ways and in his timing. Secondly, Jesus is a gentle king whose love is so great that he, he is even willing to lay his, doubt, his life down for his enemies. His love is so great, he'll lay his, down life, lay his life down for his enemies. And that is you and I. Before we know him, I want to read you to close Romans 5. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone might die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having now been reconciled, we shall be saved, saved by his life. We are all two at one time enemies, but through faith in him, we've been forgiven. And so I want to leave with the gospel message this morning. 
Let's say this is the first time you've understood King Jesus in this way. And you want to be freed from sin and the spiritual bankruptcy and the guilt of your past. It's as simple as the first four letters of the alphabet. A, B, C, and D. All we have to do to be made right with God as King Jesus came on a donkey is acknowledge our sin. Acknowledge that we sinned against God. B, believe that he did something for us by laying his life down on a cross and dying for our sins. Instead of the Passover lamb that was killed and the blood smeared to save from God's judgment, Jesus was laid on the cross and his blood was smeared so that we could be free from God's judgment. See, we confess our sins. Say, Lord, here's the things I've done that put you there. The things that I should have died for. Just confess them. And then D, you dedicate your life to him. Say, by your power, I will strive to make changes in my life and repent and live for you from here on in. That's the gospel. That's what King Jesus came to do at Easter. And all of his instructions on the donkey, around the donkey, his words, his actions, his prophecies, all were pointing to these realities. Lord, thank you for the voices of children, the inquisitive minds, and how they have a heart for you. Thank you for Easter and what it means for us as believers and for the rest of the world. We look forward to the rest of the day and the people you put in our paths and the opportunities you give us for friendships and relationships. Time with you. Amen. Yeah.